What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This new podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television. The show is called What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you some unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may have just missed. It's really the perfect way to kick off your weekend. So this week, we spoke with Connor Sen, who's a Bloomberg View columnist, and Carl Smith, who's the director of economic research at Niskanen Center, about whether the labor market should be generating higher wages. Take a listen. Well, when we look at uh, prime age workers in particular, uh, we're well below the peak that we had right before the Great Recession. We've seen a lot of prime age workers come out of the workforce. And if we break them down by category, we can look that, you know, a lot of them uh, went into the disabled category. And some analysts had thought that, you know, maybe they would stay there. They wouldn't be able to come out. But in the last sort of six or eight months, we've seen the disabled category sort of drop. And it looks like they are coming back in. And so we it looks like we may be able to move prime-age workers back at least up to where they were uh, before the, before the uh, Great Recession. And I actually think that the, uh, a peak that we had in the 90s, which was even bigger than what we had right before the Great Recession, is possible if, we, uh, if we're willing to run the economy hot enough. Connor, what do you make of the argument that because prime-age labor force participation is still pretty depressed, that there is potentially quite a bit of slack still out there? I think there's certainly some potential for additional supply if wages rise a certain amount. And the way I would sort of make an analogy here is if you look back at the oil sector in the mid-2000s, we were talking about peak oil and worrying about running out of oil. And then the price of oil went high enough to to sort of find new supply. And I think that's what we're trying to do right now when we sort of look at sort of wage growth by industry and by company to see that if when we see those companies that see significant wage growth, if they are able to pull people back in. Carl, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that things are getting tight. You look, go through the conference calls, CEOs complain about it, they talk about higher wages. You look at the various surveys, like the uh, NFIB survey, uh, people say availability of labor is one of their hardest challenges. Why isn't this to you compelling that maybe we really are running out of available workers? Well, so I think that we're running out of workers that are sort of easy to hire, workers that, um, you know, are, are typical. What we saw especially, I mean, the analogy that I like to make a lot is in the 90s when labor force participation sort of hit its peak. Um, and it was hard for companies to find workers. I mean, it was a very profitable time. You know, sales were high. So I don't think that necessarily a, a tight labor market is bad for profits. But it was difficult. But what happened is that made companies go and look for non-traditional workers. It, you know, they were more aggressive in their advertising and recruiting. Um, we see that they 
they're more willing to take disabled workers or more willing to take minorities, more willing to take people who are coming off of welfare. I, I, I see a strong link between the number of people who came off of welfare or analogy between the number of people who came off of welfare in the 90s and potentially people coming off of disability now. Both of those are populations of people who were disaffected, disconnected from the workforce, perhaps thought that you know they weren't ever going to be able to find a job again. But when the market is tight enough, they'll be pulled back in. And so that, that's going to be difficult for employers. I mean, they're going to have to work for it. But if they do that, the economy will be rewarded with a larger labor force and more overall production. Congressman, even if you think that the labor market is tight or getting much tighter, would you? what about the idea that the Fed should just wait, that wage growth really isn't that hot and there really should be no urgency until it's really uh, wage growth is really screaming? I think the question and really the big argument here is sort of the risks of both approaches. And so Carl points out that, you know, using some measures like participation, employment population, that there may still be significant supply. The alternative is that for whatever reason, whether it's education, disability, people staying at home to take care of their kids, that we really are getting close and that sort of as we get to a very low level of unemployment, we could see wage growth and inflation pick up in a nonlinear way. And that would force the Fed potentially to hike much faster than people think. And that could sort of create a recession rather than the sort of gradual high approach, which sort of hopefully can keep things on, an, on a more even keel and extend the cycle. Carl, what should the Fed do? Yeah, so I mean, I think they should definitely wait and see, take a gradual approach no matter what. What we've seen is that in, the inflation has been below target uh, for like five, six years now. It's, it's only peaked, I think, once. PC has only peaked above 2% once, maybe twice since the Great Recession ended, and then only for a few months. Um, what the Fed is telling us, what you know, uh, Jay Powell like, reiterates, is that 2% is a symmetric target, which means that we should be above it as much as we're below it. But we've only been below it since the Great Recession. And that, to me, that, is a, that, that shows that we've had two-week monetary policy, that we haven't been stimulated enough, that the Fed has given the market the impression that it's going to cut off the spigot anytime inflation even approaches 2%. And so as it does, you know, markets pull back. But I think the Fed should make it clear that this is, is a symmetric target. We're going to let it go above if we have to. Um, Powell said in his testimony, the only way that we're going to know how many people we can draw back into the labor force is to try, is to get out, the, is to see how many people come back if we run the economy. I think that's a, a good intuition. I think that he's probably not as hawkish as people think. I, mm. I hope that, and I see that in some of his testimony. And I think that um, they should stay with a, with a wait-and-see approach. Uh, Connor, I'll give you the last word. Let's say the Fed were to wait until they really see uh, inflation gathering steam and we saw wages pick up in a nonlinear way. Who gets hurt the most in that scenario? I would say it's really corporations, just with profit margins where they are, with earnings expectations where they are, with stocks sort of priced relative to treasuries, which interest rates are still pretty low. So if you sort of see this dynamic of inflation picks up, profit margins get hit as wages and costs rise, interest rates rise, which makes stocks less attractive, it's really much going to hurt corporations much more hard than it will workers in this cycle. We also spoke with Jeff Dennis, UBS Global Emerging Market Strategy Head, about emerging markets and whether they may have been impacted by the steel and aluminum tariffs that the White House is threatening. Jeff spoke about the risks of a global trade war. Certainly those countries that you mentioned are the most exposed to, um, uh, to the, in terms of U.S. Uh, imports into the U.S. Uh, steel industry uh, and imports of steel, I should say. And so there is some sort of potential hit for those economies. But I don't think that's the real problem here. I think the real problem will be whether this escalates um, in terms of retaliation from other countries, particularly, I guess, people are looking at Canada and Europe, and whether it's there for degenerate, degenerate, degenerates 
I'm sorry, into a, a global trade war. So there are some emerging markets that at the margin will be hurt, more than China is hurt, by the way, which doesn't export that much steel into the U.S. But I think the wider ramifications are what's really important here for the long term. Jeffrey, how do you weight those risks? So I think if maybe Europe taxes bourbon and China taxes sorghum or something, maybe this won't mm. be that big of a deal. But as you say, the tail risk or the real risk is a series of tit-for-tat escalations that then we could call a trade war. Is that your base mm. case scenario here or what odds do you assign on that actually happening? It's certainly not our base case at this point. Um, we think what's key about the steel and aluminium tariffs is that it really, as I said, does not impact China particularly closely. And so China is playing a relatively quiet, good game here by being somewhat calm in any sort of response. What will be interesting to see is much more what the Europeans would do. But we would tend to believe that long term this will not degenerate into a trade war. Wiser heads will prevail. And so I don't think anybody's scenario for the markets globally factors in a real trade war, because if you were to get a real trade war, investors inevitably will start to make comparisons with the 1930s, which is when obviously you had the Great Depression, when you really did have a very serious trade war. So I think wiser heads will prevail. And we're certainly not changing our forecast that this probably is going to be manageable, even though obviously this particular move by the White House is quite negative for sentiment. And as obviously pulled markets down in the last couple of days. It's just one of the issues that investors are grappling with, particularly for emerging market investors at this moment, Jeffrey. And I know you looked at the correction that we saw, the bull market correction in emerging mm. markets, and, mm. and compared it to what we've seen in the past to, to look for mm -hmm. indicators that it's over. Just talk us through the comparisons that you made. What's the same and what's different this time around? Well, when we had the correction, which was late January into into about the second week of February, and what was interesting to us is that um, it didn't feel like a serious emerging market crisis. Number one, uh, emerging markets went down no more than the U.S. went down, which is just over 10 percent. And normally in corrections, emerging markets would underperform the U.S., maybe by as much as 600 basis points. Secondly, uh, the dollar didn't rally that much. We've had the view for a very long time that a lower dollar is very good for emerging markets. So the dollar didn't rally much, and, and therefore the currency hit that EM took during the correction was less than normal. And then thirdly, perhaps most important of all, is Latin America held up best in terms of EM regions during the correction. Asia did the worst, and those two relative performances are very, very unusual in corrections. Latin America was seen as the higher risk, the highest risk region within the emerging market asset class. And I think, therefore, what the correction felt like to us was heavy profit-taking in technology and in Asia, which were the mm. big winners last year, as opposed to the start of a really nasty bear phase. Now, clearly, if the global trade war develops into something more serious, we, you know, markets may well come under pressure again. But that individual correction, as I think one of your speakers said earlier, basically shook out some of the really speculative positions in the market. It was actually quite healthy, and EM held up really well. Yeah, and I, I like what you said there, and we have a chart that kind of highlights all of this about how emerging market investors may have reason to believe that this time is different because with the brutal February correction, we did see that EM mm. suffered the biggest uh, monthly outflow since November of 2016, if we can pull up that chart to mm. illustrate this. Uh, but it actually 
pales in comparison to the 2013 taper tantrum and the 2015 devaluation mm. of the Chinese mm. yuan. What could change that? What could make, and, and there we go, there's the chart that, that highlights that. The orange line is where we are right now versus, uh, say, the taper tantrum, the white line, and the red line for the mini RMB devaluation in August of 2015. What could change that? Because mm. even though the fundamentals, uh, economic fundamentals, corporate fundamentals are fairly solid, what could turn that? Well, I mean, it's a very broad question. With the th most important thing, we believe relative to 2013 is that emerging market fundamentals generally are somewhat better. They're not better across the board, but they're generally better. And that, I think, makes the markets less vulnerable to major financial market turbulence. But most important of all is during the 2013 taper tantrum, the dollar was rising. And that meant emerging markets particularly were vulnerable to losing mm. large amounts of money back to the U.S. Um, when you got a, a sell off like you did, whereas this time around, the dollar's been going going down pretty consistently from early 2016, and that has really sustained the flows into EM. Now, clearly, if you were to get a massive sell-off in U.S. Treasuries and, and bond yields would go very high, not our base case, by the way, that would pretty quickly bring the money back into the yeah. dollar and would create a difficult environment for EM. But as that's not our base case, we think, assuming this trade situation does not um, you know, th really threaten our base case on the dollar, which is down, and our base case on bond yields, which is flat from here, emerging markets because we're recovering our view. Is there anything that worries you in the speed of the bounce back, the people going back into risk as a result post this correction that, that worries you? And if not, what are your top picks here in emerging markets that investors should be getting into? I mean, I think one of the interesting things, I'm not sure it worries me, but one of the interesting things is that in terms of emerging market equity flows, you hardly saw any pullback at all. You had one week of minor outflows during this correction, and then the money came roaring back. So I think in terms of retail, retail's put a lot of money to work, and if you like, people are getting very bullish, and I think that would inevitably make you a little bit concerned. The thing that would make me most concerned, apart from, of course, the trade issue, is the point I've just made, which is where you would see a sharp rise in your U.S. inflation, a sharp rise in U.S. bond yields, and a rally in the dollar, that would really put emerging markets under pressure. So that's what we're watching most of all. In terms of our favored names, uh, the four big markets we like the most are Russia and Brazil, both of which are doing very well this year, Korea, which is doing much less well, and Indonesia. So that, that's our focus. And sector-wise, we've got a big call out there to favor financials over yes. technology. Tech, of course, was the winner last year, and financials doing much better this year. And Nick Contenary, director of Rhodium Group's China Macroeconomic and Policy Research Practice, joined us to discuss China's National People's Congress. We spoke about China's Achilles heel. Well, I think it's we're in a, a very important context now because the National People's Congress is meeting this week and yes. for the next few weeks in Beijing, right? And the, the NPC is basically the one window we have into Chinese policy making mm -hmm. for the year. And it comes in a context where, yes, as you said, the Chinese president has recently determined that, um, or the Communist Party anyways, has said that they're going to remove term limits on the presidency. And this is the first National People's Congress to kick off the second of potentially several more terms. So it's an important tone-setting exercise and, uh, you know, obviously relevant to this question about whether the Chinese government's going to uh, pursue some significant economic reforms this year. Mm. Let's talk about the economy. They once again set that target of 6.5% uh, GDP growth, but they didn't express any interest in going above that. So there was a change in the language on the upside scenario. What does that say about their goals for 
uh, economic goals going forward. Right. Well, I think this is basically a story of continuity, right? The government pursued a pretty aggressive, and I think it surprised the market on the upside, a pretty aggressive uh, strategy of deleveraging in the financial sector this year. Uh, in the past year, I think the message is that's going to be continued into 2018. And the government, to the extent that they have to accept a little bit slower growth to do that, then I think the message is that they're going to be willing to do that. And we have a chart here on the Bloomberg that highlights that. Uh, this is uh, China's Achilles heel because you have strong GDP growth, uh, also counterbalanced by the debt build as well. When you look at some of the other things that China has announced, uh, cutting deficit to 2.6% of GDP from 3%, tax cuts of about 800 billion yuan for companies and individuals, what else do you take away from these priorities? Uh, is China under, not undermining growth, but understating growth in favor of more reform and efficiency? Right, I think that's the hope, right? My, my general view on this is we have to remember and keep in mind the political calendar, right? In 2017, China had the 19th Party Congress. It's this major once every five years political event. It was very important for the government in that context to keep the economy stable. So fiscal spending was accelerated last year. The lower deficit target this year, I think, just simply reflects that they don't feel quite as much need to intervene mm. very aggressively to stabilize the economy. But as I said, I think the macro goals basically are unchanged. It's deleveraging. It's progress on economic reform, but incrementally. And I think that's the big problem, the big risk for China this year. We talked a little bit, or you guys talked a little bit earlier about uh, U.S. policy and where that's headed, right? It's an incremental reform approach. It's not a substantial and rapid change um, in terms of how we think about how the government's going to manage the economy. How open are they to keeping President Trump happy as well and acknowledging the fact that as far as Donald Trump is concerned, he wants action from China, particularly as far as the trade deficit is concerned. I mean, you know, we had... President Xi's chief negotiator, economic negotiator, in Washington at the same time as President Trump announcing the tariffs last week over aluminium and steel. I mean, I just I can't really imagine what the Chinese are thinking at this point and where they see this potentially going. Right. Well, the, the headline message from China has basically been that everything's stable, that everything's fine, and they see this as, you know, the latest kind of chapter in some U.S.-China trade tension, but nothing fundamentally different. But I, I think that's wrong. I think there's an underestimation maybe of the willingness on the U.S. side to take some real concerted action. And if you look at what they've said already at the 19th Party Congress, you know, the message is basically, you know, we'll open maybe in some sectors to foreign investment, but the fundamental approach to the state-run economy and the heavy use of industrial policy to fulfill state goals is not changed. Nicholas, who takes the pain? So it's one thing to say, okay, we want to cut taxes and we want to reduce the debt and we want to have deleveraging and we want to maintain stable growth. In that scenario, there's no loser. So if you're going to get all these things, there's got to be trade-offs from somewhere. So who in the domestic economy and uh, ends up sort of eating some of these costs. Right. Well, I think the big story for 2018 is those costs probably are not likely to be borne this year, right? This is still a, as you know, this is a debt-driven economic story that probably has several years still to run. And the problem is that the delayed reforms today really erode from the growth potential in the mm. future down the road. So I think 6.5% this year is a reasonable assumption. You know, uh, consumption, household consumption grew very strongly last year. It's expected to grow very strongly this year. But very interestingly, that was largely driven by debt, right? We saw actually a big increase in household debt hmm. last year as debt to corporates and to government started to slow a bit. So there is a structural change, but it's still, again, it's not the sort of fundamental shift toward a sustainable growth model that we'd like to see. Well, to follow on Joe's question, to what extent do the cities, and we're talking about Beijing or Shanghai, end up seeing not a downgrade, but less opportunity for growth uh, in favor of some of the more interior 
uh, cities, whether it's uh, you know the, uh, Shandong or, or somewhere in the middle of the country. As China tries to make sure that there are enough jobs and opportunities for the people there uh, after runaway growth in some of the big cities. Right. Well, I think what's most interesting actually is that the government is concertedly and actively trying to curtail migration into the big cities. Yes. And big part of the National People's Congress focus this, this week is rural revitalization, right? It's instead of what has been the policy orientation for the past few years of putting structures in place to support people who are moving into cities, now it's actually trying to encourage them to stay closer to home. Um, but it's a, there's a downside risk to that because it means they're forced basically to accept maybe lower paying jobs and there's actually lost potential. I'm really confused about this. I was looking at some of the comments as a result of China's announcements and Eurasia was saying the 2018 target suggests slower growth and a fiscal drag. And then China's uh, the China economist Citigroup said, still, the augmented fiscal deficit, which includes local government financing vehicles and other off-balance sheet activities, critical, remain expansionary at about 10% of GDP this year. So are we talking about huge expansion to the tune of 10% of GDP or, or fiscal drag and concern? Well, it's important to keep in mind, no one's saying that, the, I mean, the fiscal deficit isn't going away, right? No, this is still a stimulative still orientation for fiscal stimulative. policy. And we've done studies at the, on the local uh, indebtedness at the local level, and we we found that local governments spend 44% more than they take in in revenues. Wow. So that's, it's a huge problem, and this is one of the key structural reforms that the government needs to address. That does it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the content, subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And, of course, a reminder that you can watch us every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Have a great weekend. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.